So we're looking at Numbers chapter 20. We'll be reading from verses 1 to 13 today. It says, And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. Water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. So I play in a hockey league on Saturday nights, and several weeks ago, uh, before the hockey game, um, I was spending some time with Paul, my son, and he was entering into the terrible twos, even though he was only like 15 months old at that point. Uh, he's entering into the full-blown terrible twos, and it was one of those things where he didn't want to do anything. It's like he wanted to go to the park or, you know, for example, and it's like, no, I don't want to go to the park. He's like, I want to eat. You give him food. No, I don't want to eat. It's like, Nothing I tried, he, he wasn't happy with anything that I did. And so it's like driving me crazy. There was a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It was terrible. And being a new parent, I'm not used to knowing how to handle this. And so then I leave there and go to the hockey game, you know, and I'm still all frustrated. And so we start playing the game, and it gets to be the third period. We're up by a goal. And I'm playing center at that point, and I go up to the face-off circle, and this guy across from me, he just starts talking, you know, trash to me. You know, and at first I look at him, I'm like just confused why he's, you know, saying these things to me. So I don't really say much about it, but then the referee drops the puck, and then he takes his stick and cross-checks me across the shoulders. And I was like, not today. Not after dealing with Paul during the day. And so what did I do? I went over and I hit him and took his stick and threw it on the ground. So after that, it cost, ended up, I got a penalty, cost my team a goal, and then I got the nickname Pastor Penalty. See, frustration can sometimes cause us to do things that maybe we wouldn't normally do. I mean, frustration can cause us to kind of reach a boiling point where we do things that are not natural to us, that we wouldn't normally do. There's an old story about uh, 
little boy who was mowing his lawn, and he got frustrated. He's sitting by the side of the road, and then a preacher came by. And the preacher was riding on a bicycle, and he saw this little boy, saw that he was discouraged, and said, hey, I'll tell you what. Why don't we trade? I'll give you my bicycle, and uh, I'll take your uh, lawnmower. So the little boy says, sure, love to. So the little boy takes the bicycle, and he rides off, and he's having a great time. Sometime later, uh, the preacher sees the little boy again, and the preacher goes up to the boy, and he says, hey, I think you, you got me a little bit because this lawnmower, as much as I crank it, it won't start. And the little boy says, well, you got to cuss it. You got to cuss it. And the preacher says, well, I'm a preacher. I can't cuss it. I, I gave up cussing a long time ago. And the little boy answers, he says, just keep on cranking it, preacher, and it'll come back to you. Frustration can lead us to do things we wouldn't normally do. Uh, Merriam-Webster describes uh, frustration in this way, feeling discouragement, anger, and annoyance because of unresolved problems or unfulfilled goals, desires, or needs. Frustration occurs when we're trying to accomplish something and it seems like the whole world is fighting against us. Frustration is something that all of us deal with on a daily basis. Uh, there was a survey that was done on mentalhealthassociation.org, uh, or mentalhealthassociationscreening.org, uh, last year. And in that uh, survey, 71% of people said they felt easily annoyed or irritable at least half of the time or nearly every day. So what are some things that might frustrate us? Our families might frustrate us. You know, if you have children, they are masters at frustrating us as much as we love them. They know how to push our buttons. They know how to uh, get us going. They're experts at making messes. They have this ability, you know, you'll be cleaning, and you'll be going through the house cleaning, and they'll go right behind you and undo everything that you've done. Maybe our spouse can be frustrated. Maybe when they do something that, you know, we've asked them a hundred times not to do. Maybe when they do something that's different than the way that we would do it. Our extended family can frustrate us, whether it's parents, siblings, in-laws. Big source of frustration is our, can be our workplace sometimes. You know, maybe our boss isn't clear what he or she expects of us and then, you know, maybe has unrealistic expectations Maybe our spouse overlooks us for a promotion and gives it to someone that we feel is less deserving. Our coworkers can frustrate us. Maybe we have a coworker that does something that's really annoying day after day after day that really gets on our nerves. Maybe you have the coworker that is really nice to your face and then uh, stabs you behind the back. Maybe you have these coworkers that you know play on Facebook all day, complain about not having anything to do while you're drowning in work. Another thing that can be frustrating, technology. Anybody ever been frustrated by technology before? Uh, there was a study done by a Syrian insurance company and they found that 80% of Americans experience some type of tech frustration every day. The weather, especially in Buffalo, can be a little bit frustrating. Uh, like for example, when we were away last week, it was super warm and I didn't have any of the air conditioners in here at the church, and so I came back and I put all of the air conditioners in at the church, and then we needed heat this week. Gets a little bit frustrating. We can be frustrated with uh, ourselves. We can be frustrated 
the fact that we make the same mistakes over and over again. We can be frustrated by our circumstances. Maybe we get frustrated by our financial situation, frustrated by our singleness. Uh, we could be frustrated uh, by things happening, by politics, uh, by COVID and all these things that have been happening and, you know, the frustration with the initial lockdowns and now there's frustration about various issues related to these things. Frustration is a part of life. Nearly every day, you know, you hear now about people getting in fights on airplanes or in stores, and it seems like people's frustration level has is, is kind of reached a boiling point. There's so many things that you could be frustrated about. Now, I wish I could do a sermon today about how to avoid frustration. I think I would be a very rich man if I could discover that secret, but unfortunately, it's not possible. All of us experience frustration, usually on a daily basis, and we can't avoid these frustrations. But we can be careful that we don't allow these frustrations to derail our walk with God. And that's specifically what I'd like to talk to you about today. In this passage, I believe that Moses' frustration has kind of reached a boiling point. And remember where Moses has been. He's been on a long journey. Uh, Moses, you know, his kind of journey started off when he killed an Egyptian and he thought that uh, his own people, the Israelites, would be happy because the Egyptian was oppressing, oppressing uh, the Hebrew. And so he killed him, but his own people kind of rejected him. And so Moses flees into the wilderness and God calls him and says, go back to Egypt, bring the people out of slavery. And so he does that and God works through him in a marvelous, miraculous way. And then the people get into the wilderness and they complain and they complain and they complain. You know, it gets to a point where God brings judgment upon them. God tells them, your generation is not going to enter into the promised land. You're going to wander around for 40 years in this wilderness before, uh, until all of this generation dies, and then your children will be able to enter in. You know, and Moses, you know, is experiencing all that, and he's, maybe he thinks to himself, well, why am I having to wander around for 40 years in the wilderness? Why am I a part of this punishment when I'm not the one who was unfaithful? It's these people that are with me that complain. They complain, I don't have food, I don't have meat, I don't have water, we should go back to Egypt. And oftentimes, it's not just complaining against God, it's complaining against Moses. Uh, just before this passage that we're looking at today, there was a rebellion by a man named Korah that rebelled against the leadership of Aaron and Moses. And so again and again, the people complain. They say, why did you bring us out here? Let's go back to Egypt. And so we get to this passage in chapter 20, and they're doing the same thing again. And they're complaining specifically against Moses and Aaron. And again, it's in this passage, it's not, why did God bring this, us here? It's, why did you bring us here? And it would be better if we were just put to death. It would be better if we were just like a part of the rebellion. Because we don't have water, it'd be better in Egypt. And so Moses, is frust his frustration is going to get the best of him. It's going to lead him into sin. And so I'd like to look for a few minutes at what frustration can lead us to. And then after that, look for a moment at uh, what our response to frustration should be. So a few things that frustration can lead us to. Frustration can lead us to take the role of God in people's lives. Look at what Moses says to the people of Israel. Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Notice the wording here. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? 
shall we do? Not shall God provide, shall we provide for you? I think what he's doing here is he's almost taking the place of God. See, Moses was a mediator of God's promises, a mediator of God's miracles. God's power flowed through him. But in this passage, he's taking the place of God. He's pronouncing judgment upon the people, judgment that God didn't tell him to pronounce. And he's speaking a word that we need to be the ones who judge you. We need to be the ones who provide for you. So in essence, I believe he's trying to take the place of God. In Psalm 106, 32 to 33, the psalmist speaks of uh, Moses speaking rashly. It says in that passage, They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. And so he's taking responsibility, taking the place of God, trying to do things that only God could do. And I think that we can do something similar. Sometimes maybe when we're frustrated, when we're annoyed, we can take the role of God. Maybe we're frustrated at a coworker or a family member, and so we kind of lash out at them, and we kind of try to take judgment into our own hands. Judgment that's reserved for God. Maybe our spouse does something that we don't like, and so we maybe through manipulation or through uh, verbal attacks, we try to change them. But God's the only one who can change our spouse. Maybe our circumstances frustrate us, and so we curse. And when I'm talking about cursing, I'm not talking about using, you know, language, foul language, or, or that kind of thing. I'm talking about cursing someone else. You know, if you were to say a, a curse on someone, if you were to say, for example, like, F you, what is that saying? That's, that's pronouncing a curse on that person. It's pronouncing something evil on that person. That's not something that you have the uh, responsibility or that you uh, are, are able to do. You know, if you call someone a derogatory name, you're pronouncing a title on that person that God hasn't pronounced on them. And that's not in accordance with God's word. But sometimes when we're frustrated, we can try to take the place of God, do things that only God is supposed to do. Of course, frustration can lead us to positive change sometimes. In a certain respect, it can be good if a person, you know, maybe is frustrated about not having money, it might propel them to get a job. But the problem comes when we try to take the place of God, when we try to do things that only God is responsible for doing. And I believe that's what happens here with Moses. He tries to take the place of God. It's him, it's Aaron who's providing for the people. It's him and Aaron who are pronouncing judgment on the people, and he's not being a mediator of God's blessing. He's trying to take the place of God. So frustration can lead us to take the role of, of God in people's life. Second thing frustration can do is frustration can lead us to what we know rather than to the word of God. So in this passage, Moses takes the staff and strikes the rock or cliff, and water comes out. And in a previous passage in Exodus chapter 17, uh, the same, a similar situation is described where God actually tells Moses to hit the rock. And in that context, it was perfectly appropriate. But in this passage, God tells them, it tells Moses to speak to the rock. What worked in one situation wasn't appropriate for the, other, for the next situation. And I think sometimes when we experience frustration, maybe we can try to solve the problem in our own strength. Maybe do something we know, and those things may not be even sinful. 
Maybe things that just worked in the past, but we don't rely on God. We don't consult God. We just try to do it in our own strength. And then sometimes we can turn to sinful responses. Sometimes frustration can cause us to act impulsively. When we're in the heat of the moment, sometimes our natural response is to act impulsively, to do what we know. When someone upsets us, maybe our first response is to go gossip about it to somebody else. When somebody cuts us off in traffic, maybe our first response is to lash out, to get angry or curse them or do other things that are not appropriate. Maybe our spouse does something that frustrates us. Maybe our first response is to verbally lash out at them. Maybe when we get frustrated, maybe our response is to turn to a substance to try to make us feel better, whether that's alcohol or drugs or food or sex or pornography, whatever the case may be. We get frustrated. We feel like we can't change our circumstance. Maybe we turn to those things. And frustration can really bring out the darkness inside of our hearts. Sometimes I think in the midst of these frustrating circumstances, we kind of need a reality check to remind us what's important. There's an episode of Seinfeld where George's father, Frank, uh, he gets angry a lot. If you, if you watch the show at all, he gets angry a lot. And so his blood pressure is high. And so he describes how he learned this technique to lower his blood pressure uh, from watching this instructional videotape. And the technique is that whenever he gets angry, he's supposed to yell out, serenity now, serenity now. And so throughout the whole episode, episode they're, they're, they're saying, serenity now. So anytime I'm upset now, I'm like, serenity now, serenity now. It doesn't really help that much. But you think about that, and, and I wonder if, what if, you know, we, when we're frustrated, we said something similar in our hearts, but what if we said, I need Jesus now? What if in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of the things that, we, that annoy us, we said, I need Jesus now. I need Jesus' perspective. I need Jesus' strength. I need Jesus' patience in this moment. I wonder how our lives might be different. I wonder how our relationships might be changed. Frustration can lead us to take the place of God in people's life. Frustration can lead us to run to what we know rather than to God's word. Final thing frustration can lead us to is it can lead us to sin, which can lead us to God's discipline. The punishment for Moses' sin in this passage seems rather severe. I mean, he hits the rock, seems like it's not a huge deal, but it, it leads to severe consequences. So what exactly was the nature of Moses' sin? Of course, you know, we know it's the unbelief. From, uh, we know from Psalm 103, he spoke rashly. He kind of took the place of God. Uh, we know that he did a number of these things, but there's something that's maybe even deeper than that. Uh, so the staff that Moses took was most likely the staff of Aaron. And back in chapter 16, what happened was after the rebellion of Korah, uh, and, and, you know, kind of a quarreling against uh, the, the priesthood, against uh, Moses, God ordered for the heads of the people of Israel, the chiefs of the people, to put their staffs uh, in the presence of the Lord. And when they did so, the, the staff of Aaron actually bloomed, and it bloomed so much that it produced almonds. And this was a sign to the people that this is the priesthood. 
Aaron is your priest. His family is the line of priests. He's the recognized authority. And so it was a sign of God's favor upon Aaron. And so it was sacred in that sense that God had blessed the staff. And so God calls Moses to go and get this staff, which would be a reminder to the people of the blessing that he had put on his leaders. And it actually says that in uh, chapter 16, uh, that it's to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may end, uh, make an end to their grumblings against me lest they die. So then Moses takes the staff and he hits the rock. And I think that he, what he's doing is he's treating something sacred as if it's common. When he takes the staff and hits it against the rock, of course, what could happen when you hit a, a staff against a rock? It could break. And yet he's taking out his anger against that staff. Also, in the scripture, oftentimes when we talk about uh, the rock or a rock, uh, God is often personified as that rock. So there could be even something more going there as where God was trying to show the people of Israel, hey, I'm your fount of living water. I'm the one who will provide for you. Moses reacts in anger, takes what's sacred, and hits that stone that represents God. One commentator puts it this way, considering that it was likely struck, speaking of the cliff or the rock, with Aaron's budding staff, and that this rock represented Christ who supplies us with a spring of water welling up to eternal life, Moses' sin was especially grievous. So the punishment is quite severe. He's come so far, he's brought the people of Israel so far, and he's going to be able to see the promised land, but he's not going to be able to enter in it. The thing that's sad is sometimes our frustration can lead to sin that really has some severe consequences. When we're frustrated and it leads us to sin, maybe God's heavy hand of discipline could fall upon us. You know, maybe we'll lose a position. Maybe we'll lose possessions. We might lose, you know, our feeling of fellowship with God. We even could die. And frustration can lead us to severe consequences. Paul warns us about this in 1 Corinthians. Speaking of all of these things that happened in the book of Numbers with the people of Israel, he says this, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul says this, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Our frustration can lead to sin, which can lead to severe discipline and consequences. So these three things frustration can lead to, it can lead us to take the role of God in people's lives. It can lead us to run to what we know rather than to God's word, and it can lead us to sin, which can lead to God's judgment. So that's kind of the negative of what frustration can lead to. So how should we respond to the frustrations of life? I believe that this passage shows us that the way that we should respond Uh, to the frustrations of life is with obedience. The only proper response to frustration is obedience. That's the main idea of what I'd like to talk about today. Our only proper response is obedience. God tells Moses this, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore 
you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Now, you might say to yourself, well, where's the obedience in there? He talks about unbelief. He says, you did not believe me. But as we look at this passage, we see that also Moses didn't obey. He didn't do what God called him to do. See, faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. You can't have faith and not have obedience. Moses doesn't obey because he doesn't believe. He's disobedient because he doesn't believe in the promises of God. He doesn't trust in the judgment of God, the justice of God. Faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. And the reason I say obedience rather than faith is because I think sometimes we can think of faith as kind of just kind of intellectual assent, right? It's like I'm going to let go and let God. And there's a sense in which that's true, that you know, you're trusting God. But faith also leads to obedience. You can't be living in faith and walking in disobedience at the same time. It's not possible. And, and I think that we've gotten so afraid of legalism uh, that we've kind of gone off the rails that it's like faith and obedience are just completely separate things. Of course, we're not saved by our obedience. We're saved by grace through faith. But that faith is to produce obedience. It's to produce good works. Uh, as James says in uh, James 2.26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith and obedience is two sides of the same coin. The only proper response to frustration is obedience. When we're experiencing things that we don't like, that we don't know what direction to turn, we have this temptation in our hearts to take matters into our own hands, and yet God calls us, walk in obedience. Trust me even when you don't understand it. Trust me even when it's difficult. Here's the scary part about this passage. Moses starts off doing the right things. You might say that this passage, that Moses' response starts off with a worship service. What does he do first? He goes into the presence of the Lord and says that him and Aaron bow down on their faces before the Lord. And he gets up from the presence of the Lord and walks in disobedience. It's an incredibly scary thing when you think about it. See, the depth of our faith is not determined by what happens here. It's not determined if we raise our hands and sing with our voices. It's not determined if we raise our hands at worship on the water. Those are good things to do. But that's not how our faith is determined. That's not where our faith is tested. Our faith, faith is tested on Monday morning when all of hell is breaking loose against us. When all of these frustrations are racing against us, that's where our faith is tested. That's where our faith is proven, in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the difficulty. And in the midst of frustrating circumstances, we need to be intentional about our obedience. We need to be careful that we don't fall into these errors, that we don't take over the role of God, that we don't simply run to what we know, but we listen to what God has said. D.A. Carson writes this, People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. 
We cherish the, the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. God values obedience. Uh, Samuel tells Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22, this, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. In the midst of frustration, God is calling for obedience. There's a movie that came out in 2012 called uh, Red Tails. Uh, it's directed by George Lucas. And it tells the, it was a dramatic version, uh, a retelling of the story of the Tuskegee Airmen. And the Tuskegee Airmen uh, were famous for a couple of reasons. The first was that they were the first African-American aviators in military, American military history. And so uh, they were famous in that respect. But they were also famous uh, militarily for the strategy that they used. Uh, they were called red tails because the uh, planes that they flew, they, they painted the tails red. And uh, they were specifically tasked with guarding the bombers during World War II. There's a big problem in the European theater in World War II. There were a number of uh, American bombers that were just being shot down. And each time a bomber was shot down, it cost a lot of money and it cost a lot of American lives. Ten to eleven Americans were on each bomber. And what would happen was that these bombers would go through uh, enemy airspace and uh, they would have these jets that would, uh, or, you know, or planes that would protect them. You know, and they'd fly all around them protecting the bombers. And uh, then the enemy would come and then they would, you know, go and engage the enemy. But as they engaged the enemy, other fighter planes, enemy planes would come and, and destroy the bombers. So the Tuskegee Airmen came up with a different strategy, and their strategy was they were going to maintain the line no matter what. It didn't matter who was coming against them. They were going to stay in formation to protect those bombers. Now, this was hard to do because every inclination they had was when the enemy came, they wanted to go off and fight against them. But they stayed the course. They stayed in formation to protect the bombers. And as a result, only 25 of the hundreds and hundreds of bombers that, flew, that they protected uh, during World War II were shot down. They became famous, and if you were a, a, a pilot of a bomber, you wanted the red tails to protect you. Their motto, as uh, described in the movie, was the last plane, the last bullet, the last man, the last minute we fight. They stayed faithful even in the midst of opposition. And I think that's what God is calling us to. When we're experiencing frustration, those are the moments when we're most tempted to go off path. Those are the moments when we're most tempted to do things our own way, to turn to an addiction, to try to solve it ourselves, to take the place of God. But those are the moments when we need to obey. Those are the moments when we need to trust God, even when we don't see the outcome. We all face incredible frustrations. Maybe we'll face them even before we leave this church or on the way home today. Yet how will we respond to them? Will we respond to them with obedience? Because I believe that's what God calls us to. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that even when we fail, even when we fall short, your grace is enough for us. 
Lord, we thank you that you give us examples in the Scripture. Examples of others who have fallen short. Others who have made mistakes. Lord, we know that's an encouragement to us because we all make mistakes. We all fall short. We all let our frustration get the best of us. But Lord, in the midst of the frustrations that we experience, Lord, we pray that we would trust you enough to obey you. Even when we don't feel it, even when everything within us is tempting us to turn astray, that we'd walk forward in obedience. And when we know that when we do that, we'll experience your blessing. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died for us and that your grace is enough for us no matter where we might be. Lord, help us to turn to you. Help us to trust you with all of our hearts today. In Christ's name I pray, amen.